Okay, it's March the 10th, 2019, lecture discussion number 55 on the book of Joel, uh, with the previous lecture number 54 having been on February the 24th, that's two Sundays hence, and because of that we've had two weeks now of surprising and relevant information that has arisen, transpired. I mentioned in the pregame a little bit about the anti-Israel gathering, if you wish to call it that. That's the best I can really attribute as an adjective. The anti-Israel forces, the boycott, um, uh, divest and sanction movement is, is, the momentum is extraordinary. Uh, no one thought that it would happen in this country, and it is happening. It's seizing uh, a great, a, a large section of this country, especially the political side of it. And at simultaneously, we have this governmental surveillance that is unprecedented. If you have a phone, and you all do, I do not. Um, Neanderthalic as I am, I, I just can't be interested in one of these things. The cost and all the other elements of it just to, to me are prohibitive. But um, you may think right now that this is in private hands, but as, as this system gets more and more pronounced, everything that you do on your telephone is recorded. Every conversation, everything you pull up to look at and and analyze, every purchase you make, every email you send, every little Texty, thummy thing that you do, all of it is kept, all of it is known. Every location that you have, all purchases, that is governmental surveillance at a level that has never been seen in the world. It is one of the predictors of the end of the age of the Gentiles. The government will come to the ability to surveil everyone. Every transaction can be controlled. All financial economic systems can be controlled. That is something that the Bible has predicted for thousands of years. We are watching it happen. And we think we're so ignorant as a people. that We think these private companies are not going to align with the government. Then Google has already aligned with the communist government of China to surveil their people. They are, they are producing systems to make it extremely simple for the government of China to enslave the Chinese people. And there are more Christians in China than there are in the United States. There are no private companies now. They're all going to be government controlled entities, what's called GTEs. It's just a matter of time. You already see the politicians beginning to recognize the power that are in these electronic systems. Both of those, the anti-Israel and the governmental surveillance, both of those are fundamental prophecies of the Bible with regard to the end of the age of the Gentile. A grandchild has arrived. She came for the buffet, I mean, and I'll talk about that. Anyway, I should also say, I am in, th- in the 13th day of the 14-day flu. Uh, it's a 14-day uh, process, apparently. Uh, this will be, I think today is my 13th day. Lori's in 12 days, maybe 11. I don't know how much of a head start I had on her. Therefore... She has to be shunned by all of you today. You can't talk to her. You can't let her near anything you own. This stuff is bad. Bill the cow. Hi, Bill and Becky. Becky, crazy Becky, probably infected half of Anchorage just by herself. Uh, and Bill finally succumbed and fell to the, the powers that, that uh, have been pushed upon him. He's at home. He called and said, I can't make it. I'm sick. This stuff is really, really powerfully bad for older people. You young folks, I think, will be fine. But for us, it's it's, it's knocked us both down simultaneously. And as a result of this experience, this 13 days of of misery, I've decided to construct a few things. A barrier system primarily. 
a sequential set of obstacles that's going to disable the access to the dessert buffet table uh, for the small children who have little regard for personal hygiene. Has anybody ever stood back there? To, yes, a big hurrah from some of us. If you looked at what these kids do, you know, they're cheering all over the place. This is, I, I, I don't know what to say. So expect that we, we've raised it today, but expect it to be raised to six to 15 feet. And I plan on electrifying it. I have that kind of technological capability. Uh, having worked for the railroad, there's an anti-climbing system on the front of every locomotive that prevents the moose that they strike from coming into the cab of the locomotives. And so I plan to have that with that experience, my boilermaker uh, time that I spent. I plan on putting some kind of anti-climbing protrusions there and a hydraulic activated unistrut system to defeat the inevitable ladders and a ladder assault. These are three or four or five-year-olds. You got, they're diabolical and they're relentless and resourceful and we're talking about restricting their cookies and they're going to respond. And if you've been, you've been back there and watched that, oh my gosh, feel free to, to, to hit every single one of them as hard as you can so we can break this problem. If you get this flu, you're going to know why I'm beginning to fight the fight here. Okay, it's not that bad. Well, yeah, it is. Yeah. We've got to start spraying these kids with alcohol. Denatured alcohol. Don't drive. Don't, don't jump to conclusion. <laughs> okay. Probably best to, then uh, to bring some of the subjects from two weeks ago. Two weeks is forever here at Cliffside. Nobody remembers anything, especially me. So let's uh, back up and bring them up to the surface here and see what we got. We're in the prophecy of Joel. And as you know, the prophecy of Joel is a tribulational explanation, which means that the age of the Gentiles has ended. The bride of Christ, the church, has been abducted. Now, this is a dispensational position. Not everybody agrees with me. Uh, I have yet, however, believed a, an argument that can refute it, or even found one that has wobbled my legs. So uh, I'm prepared to defend it. So the age of the Gentiles is ended in the bride of Christ. The church has been abducted. The nation of Israel, which is the divorced wife of YHVH, has returned to the forefront now. You have these two tracks that have occurred. Israel is still Israel. Still the wife is, has been set aside. But they are still moving towards, and the church has taken the focus. The church is now, the focus is removed. Israel will notice that focus. That is why the church is removed primarily, and Israel now comes to the forefront. And so we have a situation where the the wife of Israel, I'm sorry, the wife of YHVH, which is Israel, has come back into position and is now awaiting the return of the king. That's an important thing. Israel is waiting for the return of the king of the Jews. Now, they don't necessarily know that. But they are waiting. If they went to Ezekiel chapter 10, they'll see the Shekinah glory. The light of life has left the temple. Now, the light of life came back, and they rejected the light of life. And they're awaiting the return of the king and the installation of the thousand-year reign of the Messiah. And as always, it's critical to understand that the nation of Israel is symbolized by the symbol, by the picture of an adulterous, divorced wife. And the church, the bride of Christ, is portrayed as a betrothed bride awaiting the return of her bridegroom. I have, had, I have the departure of the Shekinah glory in Ezekiel 10. And I have the departure of the bridegroom at John, in the book of John, where he says, I leave now to go to prepare a place for you. The Hebrew betrothal ceremony step. Christ has departed. He's ascended. 
So I have departure and departure. We're waiting for what? The return of the bridegroom, aren't we? So here comes our return. We're looking for the return of the bridegroom. The Israel had a departure of the Shekinah glory, and they're waiting for the return of the king. Return to part, return to part. I want you to notice that. Why did the bridegroom depart? He has three offices, prophet, high priest, returning bridegroom, or king. He's both of those. Why this return, depart, depart, return? What's the purpose of that? But notice that Israel has the same pattern as we do. Obviously, Jesus Christ is the king of Israel. He is the Messiah of Israel. And he is the bridegroom all simultaneously, which would make sense since he's the creator of time. He's the I am, the creator God in the flesh. He assumes many roles, if you will. And knowing how all the roles fit and why the roles are the roles that he's chosen. He is God. He's the angel of the Lord. He's the prophet of God. The angel of the Lord is known primarily for one event in Scripture. Passover. He's the angel of the Lord. He's the high priest of God. He's the lamb of God. He's the prince of peace. He's also the prince of life. That's just to name a few. He's everlasting father, Isaiah 9, 6. Those are his roles. I didn't give them all to you. There's many more. Anyway... The book of Joel is centered on the nation of Israel, not the church. You're trying to find the church in in Joel. You can find it. We're there. It's very hard. Not very hard. You better know what you're doing to find it. And so the book of Joel is talking about the wife, the divorced wife of God, not the church. That means the age of the Gentiles has ended. The time of Jacob's trouble has begun. Joel is tribulational. And the final attempt to destroy the Jews will be made by the nations of the world. Israel will be isolated. There's your boycott, divest, sanction. They'll be hated. Boy, the hatred for the nation of Israel is exploding. They're going to be cursed. And God says something quite significant. Genesis 12:3. You curse and hate Israel, I will curse you. You bless Israel, I will bless you. That's, uh, he will curse those who curse Israel. That ultimately becomes a discussion on Galatians 3:8 and Genesis 15:6, which we'll do next week. But he will bless those who bless Israel, and he will curse those who curse Israel. I would think you should know that if you're planning on cursing Israel. They don't care. So we should make a note. We, as the bride of Christ, it would be wise to watch the nations rage against Israel. In our country, the generation currently subjected, the most recently subjected to the academic processes, the academia, the world of academia, this generation that you see now, they're in their early 20s, has an unprecedented level of contempt for Israel. They are being taught to hate this nation. The correlation is not coincidental. In other words, the academic world hates Israel. It's on every campus, everywhere. And it is is, uh, being embedded in these children. By children, I mean 20-year-olds. At my age, 50-year-olds, very young-looking. Wow, look how young that 50-year-old looks. I say that all the time. No one ever says to me, you look really young. No one, ever. I think one person would lie somewhere, but it's not happening. Anti-Semitic allegations, uh, they're 
that we're watching it happen in, in our government. They are bereft of truth. They've reached into the House of Representatives. I expect they were, expect them in the presidency. Um, I believe they've been in the presidency. I've said so. The resurrection of the nonsensical blood libel can't be far off. If you're not familiar with the blood libel, the Jews were accused of killing and eating children by their enemies. That will come back. That was used to foment hate and to raise an army to attack them. Jesus Christ himself placed Lot and Noah side by side, Luke 17, 26 through 32. Noah, Lot, Lot's wife, God connected them and their signs to Israel at the end of the age of the Gentiles. The signs that the messianic kingdom is on the cusp. So the question becomes, what is the same about Genesis 6, which is Noah, and Genesis 13, 13, and Genesis 18, 20, which is Lot? What's the same about them? Something is the same. There is a commonality. What is the commonality? Christ says, at the end of the age of the Gentiles, Lot and Noah, or Noah and Lot. What is he trying to say? And there are many, many positions, as you know. The one that you'll see the most is suddenness, that God strikes with suddenness. Did he strike with suddenness at Genesis 6? How long did he give them? He gave them 120 years, and he gave them 40 days and 40 nights. How sudden is that? I don't think suddenness is the commonality. And while you're assembling your thesis, uh, I'll add this back in today, because this is so much fun. Void zero. Why are we doing void zero today? You have to do void zero today. Why? Because it's what? That's right. It's daylights. Daylight savings. Say it with me. Time. Yay. Yay, void zero. Void zero, if you remember, if you care, and neither is assumed here at beautiful downtown Cliffside. Void zero is the nothingness from which the created order was spoken into existence. Thus the question If the created order consists of matter, space, energy, and time, and it does, that's the created order, matter, space, energy, and time, what then is the description, what is the characteristics, what is the attributes of timelessness? If time is in the created order, void zero, therefore, is not in the created order. So, I do not have any time in void zero, but I have his timelessness. And that is lots of fun, as I describe and define fun. So we'll put timelessness here. Timelessness. I had a wonderful little letter, not letter, somebody left on it. I believe it was Jennifer who lives in the complete barren desert of Arizona, which is uninhabitable. Uh, occasionally they have something called snow that they've never seen before. It's fantastic. But anyway, uh, she wrote a little thing and she made a comment about time and she went, oh no, I said time. Yes, that's fantastic. So I want you to begin to give me in your new list you can have lots of things. I want you to begin to think about what applies to timelessness, the characteristics, the attributes. Describe the timelessness state. You're describing void zero. What it is, give me a description of it. Now, this might seem unrelated to Joel, but it's not. It might seem that way to the non-Cliffensteinen, but it's clearly not. It's fundamentally a discussion of origins. 
and we'll get in back into the discussions of origins, the origins of things, of life, of time, of the created order, of consciousness. In this case, I have timelessness. We're talking about the origins of time. To talk about the origin of time, I have to discuss timelessness. So what is timelessness like? The institution, the installation of time. Why is there time? So here's a couple of my new favorite trick questions. How long is timelessness? Let me repeat that. How long is timelessness? I'll write that down because it's so clever. How long is timelessness? How about this one? How long was timelessness? As you know, I got a letter from New Zealand wanting to discuss these kinds of questions. And because of that, no one from here is ever going to New Zealand. It was just kind of a shame, but really I wouldn't hold the whole country against Ralph. Anyway. You choose. Which one do you like? How long is timelessness or how long was timelessness? And they're, they're obviously trick questions. And they're my favorites now. Yeah, here, let's try another one. What can be done in timelessness? I could say what was done in timelessness, but I won't bore you with that. What can be done in timelessness? In other words, what, what is it to the, that has been done in timelessness? What I want you to notice is that this is a what? And this is a what? Those are time references, aren't they? I'm asking you to, do, do, to give time references to timelessness. Is that appropriate? No. There's a word for that. It's, it rhymes with dumb. Okay. Now I'm asking you, can you do something in timelessness? Is there doing in timelessness? Was something done? Is there anything that can be done? Is there anything that, that is being, is there any doing? Again, the present and past tense. Uh, oh, the irony. I am proposing, obviously, that there is nothing physical in timelessness. Do you see? Timelessness is not a physical event of any kind. It is non-physical. It is, it is therefore spiritual, which means it can only be described theologically. Particle or physical based properties have no application in void zero. Let me put void zero up here because that's what we're doing. As opposed to void one, right? What is void one? It is space. There is no void one in reality because there is no vacuum in reality. There's no vacuum in reality because of electromagnetic radiation, among other things. We've had that discussion many times. But this is void zero. So void zero has no physical properties. Nothing can be done there. There is no doing there. So what is in void zero? (coughs) Where Where did timelessness come from? There's my favorite. New favorite. I wanted favorite number three. Remember, time requires consciousness. Are you aware of that? It requires a mind. It is a construction of a mind. It requires entropy, which is change and motion. Motionlessness, absolute stop, total stillness is not to be confused with undetectable motion, which again, omniscience records All motion, any motion, even at the microscopic level, especially at the microscopic level, fundamentally at the microscopic level. 
Motion is subject, therefore, to omniscience. Movement and change cannot escape being observed by omniscience. I'm asking you, is there any motion in a timelessness? Time and physical properties, physical materials, uh, are inexorably linked. And that is logically the case. Time created, the created order, after all, is a space, energy, matter, and time. They are together. I, if I have matter and I have motion, then I will have time. It's only logical that time was instituted, created, when space, energy, and matter were created. But timelessness resides in the spiritual realm, the mental properties, and must therefore be discussed again with theological terminology. I'm asking, uh, how long, how long is, was, done, doing, are those theological terms? No. I don't get to use those terms when I'm talking about timelessness. That might make some sense to you. It's okay if it doesn't, because we have many more lectures to go on this fantastic subject of great interest to no one. I'm often asked if in the eternal order. I have the view of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, and then the eternal order after the 75 day interval and the 1000 years of the seventh day. Let's see if I did it right. Five, six. Kind of. I didn't do it right. That's the millennial rule. That's the 75-day interval. Okay? Then is the eighth day. That is the restoration of all things. That's the eternity. And I have asked all the time, the eternal life state, is this a timeless condition? In other words, is there timelessness here? And what do you think? I get an immediate no from Daniel. Anyone want to argue with him? No one wants to argue with Daniel. Wow, Daniel, you're off pretty powerful. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. Will there be physical properties here? Will there be uh, physical beings? How about a city? What shall we call the city? Ooh, New Jerusalem. Will there be a, new, a heaven and an earth there? Are those physical? Physical beings, physical materials. Will there be any motion? Movement. Microscopic motion. Macroscopic motion. Quantum and Newtonian. In other words, will there be space, energy, matter, and wait for it, time in the eighth day? Will there be change? Will substances be eaten? Will you eat something here? If you eat something, that's change, is it not? Will there be modification? Will there be trees? Can I take a tree and turn it into a desk? Can I harvest the tree and construct a stairway? Or a chair? A table? I have low entropy. Um... And high entropy, as you know. Will I take something of high entropy and reduce its entropy and make it more complex? That's thermodynamics. Will there be freedom here? That is, by the way, ooh. I made a big box because I knew I was going to have trouble today. Will there be freedom? Freedom is, is very interesting. And speaking of thermodynamics, I know you didn't. We have Deuteronomy 8.4. Uh, this is something all of you students of thermodynamics need to read Deuteronomy 8.4. And 29.5, frankly, but we'll pound away at Deuteronomy 8.4 right now. 
<sighs> this is God. Remember the Lord your God. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell for these 40 years. Now let's go to 29.5. Deuteronomy. Twenty-eight, twenty-nine, And I led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness, the garments and the sandals of the Israelites never were affected by thermodynamic processes. They did not transition from a low entropy state to a high entropy state. God did not allow thermodynamics to affect the shoes and the clothing of the Israelites for 40 years. And in addition to this exclusion from thermodynamics, God fed them and provided water so that they would know that he's the Lord God. I hope that if I had shoes that I wore every day in the woods, wandering around in the desert, and they were never affected by that, I would recognize the suspension of thermodynamics to my shoes, and I would know who did it. I would know this is an unbelievable thing. Cannot be explained. How are these, these specific suspensions of the thermodynamic processes, that's friction, to just give you some, radiation, contamination, Exposure to water, gravity, the Poynting-Robertson effect. Uh, all, kind, all of these forces and more did not impact the garments and the shoes of the Israelites for 40 years. Garments and shoes. What's the obvious questions? And somehow putting garments and shoes together with bread and water. No wine. Why is he making these kinds of... He's putting those together, saying, this proves I'm God. Garments and shoes, though, what's the obvious questions? Besides, why garments and shoes? What about hats and gloves? Are they included in clothes and sandals? How about the belts? Every high school kid I ever had when I did this would say, how about the underwear? Mr. Chronister, do you have underwear that's over 40 years old? They would ask me. I was in my 30s at the time. They thought that was very clever. What about those who died in the wilderness? Because they died in the wilderness, the first generation of Israel. The first generation is a generation that comes out of Egypt. Let me ask it this way. Is this a first generation miracle? Or did it also include the second generation? Is, it the, is everybody's clothes for 40 years, irrespective of when they entered into the clothing system? Or is it just the first generation? Or is it both first and second? What happened to the clothes of the dead people? Death has been described as the ultimate entropy, the complexity uh, to the simple, the low entropy, which is complexity to high entropy, which is dust. That is considered to be an extraordinary example of thermodynamics. And so I want to know what happened to the clothes of the people that died. Did they bury them with their clothes? Or did we have clothing sales? I imagine the discussions at the funerals. You know, I got Zebulun, I got Bashamoth. They've died. Look at that clothing there. Those shoes. I'd have a sign, wouldn't I? Use clothing, good condition. Right? Start, start considering what's going on here. The clothing and the shoes are pristine. I want to know what happened to them. What did they do with them? What would you do with clothing and shoes that can never wear out? 
Can you poke a hole in it? That'd be my next question. Do I have Kevlar here? What what are the the properties of clothing and shoes that cannot wear out? And then what happened to them? Did the physical death of the owner end the protection of the garment from natural processes? In other words, are the garments the burial clothes? And if I could find those garments around that uh, body, which now would be pure dust, I could find that burial site, would those garments still be in the position they were in during that 40 years? Did he allow it to go to, uh, did it allow it to, to deteriorate? And obviously, now here comes Jude 9, right? Yea, yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring him a reviling accusation. Michael is battling Satan over the body of Moses. Michael will not. He did not dare accuse Satan of anything. He was still subjected to Satan in the sense that Satan carried tremendous weight over him. My question was, obviously, was Moses' body still clothed in his garments and sandals that could not decay? And June 9 is a great mystery, and somebody ought to take that on pretty soon. Soon being a relative term. Obviously, the garments of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3. Oh, looky here. Genesis 3 shows up again. What a shock. Everybody put on your surprised face. God made the garments of Adam and Eve. Did they decay? What do the histories say? They say they did not decay. They've traced these. Tried to find out who had them. There's a lot of evidence that Esau took them from Nimrod. Where did they go? Who's got them now? Did they ever decay? How good of a clothier, uh, what did that be, tailor? How good of a tailor is God? How extraordinary are the garments of Adam and Eve? Did they deteriorate? If you say they deteriorated, then what is the... the theological statement that is attached to that position. If the blood coverings of Adam and Eve deteriorated, had no endurance, what have you done? The coverings of God, if the coverings of God prevail against time and thermodynamics, then where are they? If they don't, what is the consequences? What is the implication theologically? Where is this body of Moses? Did Satan get it? And why did Satan seek to possess the body of Moses? Those are wonderful questions. Why did he attempt to steal? Why didn't he attempt to steal the body of Christ? If you can't get Moses' body, why not get Christ's body? As Deuteronomy 18:15, if he's fighting for Moses' body, Christ is Moses is a type of Christ. It does not seem that he fought for Christ's body. Why not? Why the difference? Anyway, again, somebody should look into those. Uh, maybe the answer me that dude could get get on that if he really exists, and we're still unsure. For today, what is the message to Israel from God of the garments, the sandals, the manna, and the water? They prove that He is God to Israel. How is this so? Did it prove that He is God to Israel? Did they look at their shoes and their clothes and the manna and the water and say? This is God doing this for us. How did they respond to it? It is evidences, but did they, uh, did they accept the evidences? Believe it or not, the clothes, the shoes, the manna, and the water have a direct correlation to slavery. You probably thought I was neglecting the issue of freedom and bondage, but I am not. I have my subtle little ways. I'm leaving timelessness on the board. 
Now we're headed to freedom versus slavery. What is freedom and what is slavery? There seems to be a dispute. Deuteronomy 28, 68. Just prior to the evidences of the clothing and the sandals and the manner uh, and the manna and the water. So this is the context of the clothing and the sandals and the water and the bread. Let me go to 40, 45 of Deuteronomy 28. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you as a, for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. We'll move over here to 68. And the Lord will take you back to Egypt in ships by the way of which I said to you, you shall never see it again, and there you shall be offered for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. And after that he talks about manna and water and Garments and shoes. Obviously they didn't believe garments and shoes and manna and water. Because they did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart. No, but no one. And there you shall be offered for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But no one will buy you. No one will buy you. This is what God says to the nation of Israel. Well, that's pretty cool. I think that's a new emphatic device. I see your hands. He's telling me, please stop. It's okay, I'm on page 11, I should make it. No one will buy you. What's the obvious question? Why not? And this, here, this is a reference to Egypt. I will take you back to Egypt in ships. That's a reference to Egypt. Egypt is the foremost symbol for slavery in Scripture, in, in that Israel suffered the cruelty of being sold into slavery in Egypt. The book of Exodus, as you know, is God freeing the Israelite slaves. He took them out of Egypt, out of bondage. Egypt is typological. It's the place of imprisonment, the place of captivity, the, the place of death. And Israel, as you know, Exodus 16:3, 17:3, Numbers 11:4 through 5, and Numbers 14:2 through 4. Let me repeat that for the people in the audience that uh, is digital, and therefore we don't know if they truly exist. They could be automatons. They could be algorithms. They're just zeros and ones, for all we know. Same for us. It's all they know. Exodus 16:3, 17:3, Numbers 11:4 through 5, and Numbers 14:2 through 4. That's just to name some. Israel continually accused God of being evil as He's taking them out of slavery and saving them. They're screaming at Him that He is evil. Those are four such examples, and they also portray Egypt as being a place where they were perfectly happy and they were blessed. They are in the cruelest slavery ever recorded in history. And they describe it as his blessed, wonderful place. Now, what is the application to you and me? This is an applicational sermon. I guarantee you that, that if I ask people, what do you think of Alaska? They would say it's beautiful. And it is not beautiful. It is a cursed remnant of the flood. It is not how it was originally designed. It is a wasteland. In our case, it is a white sand beach. 
filled with snow. And even though we have daylight now till well past eight, you poor suffering souls in Arizona, take that. We have 32 degrees of daylight. Wow. I have a wonderful tan now. Which means I don't have skin cancer. But Israel continually accused God of being evil and portrayed Egypt as being a place of perfect happiness and blessedness of beauty. We do the same thing. We love our fallen earth. We, I call it a vat of sewage. We're bobbing around in it going, our sewage is fantastic. Look at what I bought at the store with my money. I love this thing. And to God, it is absolutely a cursed environment that he will fix. Egypt, again, portrayed by Israel of a perfect happiness, a blessed place when it, in fact, was a dystopian hell, a tormenting enslavement. And which raises the most obvious question. Why does Israel constantly accuse God of bringing them into a place of evil when they were in a place of evil and he brought them out of it? It is oppositeville. They have been freed, saved from death. The Egyptian army was coming after them. He pulled them out, right? The Egyptian army. What is the Egyptian army going to do? Going to hand out presents? No, they're going to kill them. He saves them from the slaughter. Now, some would, would, have been, would have been seized. Those were the survivors. And they would be doomed back into brutal, merciless, merciless slavery. Read again Exodus 16:3, 17:3, Numbers 11, 4 and 5 and 14, 2, 2 through 4. It's madness. You can't explain why Israel thinks that way. Why would they want this? Why are they clinging to this earth? Oh, wait. And they do it. Again, what could possibly be the origin, the inception of this thought process, this behavior that became pervasive in the first generation of Israel? They call evil good and good evil. Once again, that's where? That's Genesis 3. There we are again, Isaiah 5.20, but it's also it's primarily Genesis 3. And hopefully you've become to begin to consider, but no one will buy you. Oh, amazing. That's amazing. Obviously, no one will buy you as a picture of who? That's Christ. He's referring to himself. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is who? He's the one that buys you, buys me, buys us all, takes us out. He pays the cost of our slavery. Do we want to be slaves? Obviously, Israel does. Most of this world does. It's Christ who purchases the freedom of the damned. When God says no one will buy you, those are solemn words indeed. What does that mean? If he says to you, I will not buy you. What is your fate? Jesus Christ is the only one who can pay. Ultimately, this, this narrows, this discussion of slavery here narrows to freedom or death. Freedom is life. Slavery is death. When God is talking about slavery, he's talking about the reducing of a living being to property. That's death. And so he, every time he discusses it, it is a discussion of freedom and death. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore, slavery. And you will be offered for sale, but no one will buy you. There's only one that can buy you. It is common for mankind to portray the creator of all things, the possessor of all things, Genesis 14, as an evil slave owner. And you see this all the time. It's on t-shirts. It's in the movies. It's all on TV shows. It is better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. That is very common. It is in the school systems. And that's what they are perpetrating on our children. Well, let me say this. There is no gladness. There is no joy. There is no abundance of everything in hell. 
There's only darkness, misery, despair, and weeping. No one rules anything in hell. Satan does not rule in hell. The demons do not rule in hell. Give up your cartoons and your stupid Hollywood movies. Stupid Hollywood is a redundancy. I read a quote by uh, Harry S. Truman, I think, today. or It might have been. Yeah, it was today. He said, I had two choices as a young man. either, Either to be a piano player in a whorehouse or a politician, I recognized there was really no difference. I thought that was actually very, very well said. Our country is a wreck, a moral mess. Just go to Vermont, New York, Massachusetts. It is a moral dystopia, to reuse that word. No one rules in hell. Satan, everyone, the demons, mankind, they're all equals in hell. I've been asked many times over the years of my so-called career, does your creator have the right to rule over you? That's what I ask. Does God have the right to rule over you? That's a simple yes or no question. Will you serve him with joy and gladness and choose an abundance of everything? What is an abundance of everything? Let me define it for you. It is an abundance of everything. What do you have now? You do not have an abundance of everything. If you choose slavery and death over serving with joy and gladness and an abundance of everything, no one will buy you. Which brings to the surface another most obvious question. What is the cost? What does it cost to pull somebody, to redeem somebody from slavery and death? How much does it cost to free one slave from death? Just one. Why does it cost what it costs? You decide what it costs and then you decide why does it cost that? And who can pay it? Obviously, I'm telling you that no one can pay it. But why does he pay it? This, of course, is Exodus 21, which we're going to be investigating more so completely next week. Along with Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches, which is also Matthew 13. The pattern of Matthew 13, the parable template, and the churches of Revelation 2 and 3 might just correspond as you should expect, because who said the one that said both of them said both of them. He has a tendency to be very, very good at connecting himself to himself. And omniscience is very handy when you're doing these kinds of things. 